chapter 2, if you will, this morning. What we're going to do is I'm going to start a study this morning about how to enjoy the Bible. And uh, we did this back 20 years ago, and I'm going to redo it so it's more current on the online, but also because it's the holiday seasons and everything and people are coming and going, and then hopefully it'll, this will take November, December, and then January we'll start afresh uh, where I'm going to hammer away on you because some of you need it. But uh, I'm just kidding. Man, you guys got to lighten up here, you know, okay? Uh, Alabama won, so let's lighten up, all right? Anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, if you will. Um, we, we looked last uh, a couple weeks ago about a study that we could understand, and we talked about dispensational Bible study. And really what I want to do is spend some time with you. And uh, I told you 1 Corinthians 2. If you look at Philippians 3, Philippians 3 and verse 1, and I start here with that because as I look around the room, a lot of us are very familiar with this information and yet at the same time, the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it is safe. And there's safety in being reminded from time to time of, of what we believe, where we're coming from, how we're going to see. So what I'm going to do is we're just going to talk about how to enjoy the Bible. And I want to look at a strategic, a strategic grasp of God's Word, how you can enjoy God's Word for you, for yourself. And as we start this morning, there are, in part one, if you will, there really are some fundamental keys to reading and to understanding and to studying God's Word that allows you to grasp it and understand it for yourself, Okay. When you ask people what do they need to know or to have to understand God's Word, they usually will say, well, you need a Bible. Then they'll go to commentaries, and then they'll go to um, the Greek and the Hebrew text, or they'll go to a dictionary. Some will say that you need to have a preacher or a priest or something along that. Uh, most people just say, forget it. It's too confusing. It's too hard to understand. We're not going to worry about it at all. But yet, really, God has put in his word. He's provided some tools that gives us the ability to not only possess God's word, but also to grasp it, to understand it for yourself. And that's really the big thing here, for you, you personally. And 1 Corinthians 2, as we begin to look at these keys, there's four keys that, that kind of... That, that are critical to get here in the very beginning, these tools, keys, or however you need to say it, that helps you, that God's provided, that helps us grasp the Word of God. And the first one starts with the proper student. In chapter, one, uh, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, the proper student, someone who uh, has the confidence that they possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit, he's the teacher. And that issue of, now again, I teach, other people teach, other things like that, but yet when it comes to God's Word, there's only one that's really the teacher of God's Word, and that's the Holy Spirit, the one who wrote the Word. 
So he is the one who's then going to teach you in your inner man. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Notice this verse very carefully. In of yourself, in you, you can't know. The ear gate, the eye gate, and the heart gate. Those three gateways that man knows things. Ear gate, eye gate, eye, I see it. I can scientifically, logically work through it. It's right in front of me. I can see it. The ear gate, I hear it, and and I, I can believe it because someone told me. And then the heart, the faith issue, and the faith is resting in that object of what I've seen and I hear. You left to yourself can never know the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Well, how do you know that? Well, because God's word just said that. Okay? Verse 10. But God. Never read verse 9 without reading verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth, he, the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him, even so the sp- things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. And we understand that God has revealed himself. God has made himself known. How? By his spirit. Verse 10. It's the spirit of God that is going to reveal God to us. And how do you, we understand how that works. You understand what I'm saying. I understand what you're saying. We commun- Why? Spirit of man, spirit. That's what 11 and verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So if I'm going to know the things freely given to me, what, who do I have to have? I have to have the spirit. I can't come to it on my own conclusion. I have to have the spirit. But how does that spirit work? Verse 13. Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The Holy Spirit is going to use words to teach. He's going to use specific words to cause us to to learn and to grow and to grasp and to understand. So to study God's Word, the very first requirement in understanding the scriptures, is to have the confidence that we have the indwelling Spirit of God resident in our inner man, and that's where he's going to teach us. So the question then is, is how do I know that? How do I have the confidence? Come over to Ephesians chapter 1. How do I know for sure that I have the indwelling Spirit of God in me? And and again, nothing here about where you go to church, nothing about which football team you support or don't support, nothing about any of that stuff, nothing about you, nothing about your activity. But rather, it's about the Spirit. It's about the activity of the Godhead, if I can say it that way. Ephesians 1, verse number 13. Here's how I know. In whom, and that'll be Christ, the end of verse 12, who first trusted in Christ. In whom, in Christ, ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. 
which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So what are we going to do? There's some things here that are happening about the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that are going to happen to you that you know that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Notice the verse. The first issue, I'm going to hear. Now what do I hear? The gospel, right? In, uh, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believe. So we're going to believe. What are we believing? The gospel. And then, so this goes into that. That goes, and then what happens? We are sealed, and that's the result. And we're sealed with who? With the Holy Spirit. By the way, he's the earnest. He's the down payment of our eternal life. That's who he is. How do you know God's going to resurrect you one day? Because what did he seal you with? Who did he seal you with? His spirit. And his spirit comes in and, go, and begins to now work into your inner man. Again, how do, you, how do you know absolutely that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? The one that te the teacher of God's word. You know by hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and then you are sealed. By the way, not any gospel, Paul's, my gospel. Come over to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So when you begin to think about how to enjoy the Bible, the Bible is not a confusing book at all. By the way, if you just started reading it in Genesis, you see a whole, you see the history of it. You, you, you get a history lesson right off the first 39 books. You know, you just get this wonderful, you see this. It, it gets confusing for us when we begin to study it. By the way, reading it is different than studying it. They're different. Study it. You're going to get in and meditate on it and dwell on it. We'll talk about that in, in, in a little bit. Notice 1 Corinthians 15. Look here at verse 1. Here's the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. All right? So I'm saved. By the way, just FYI, the new Bibles change that, and they say that you are being saved. No, one time, boom, it's done. I'm saved. Verse 3, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen. Now, you've got some things there that in that list that are very interesting. The first thing you begin to understand under the gospel is I'm a sinner. Happy, happy, happy. I'm a sinner. I am, I'm, sin separated me from God. That's what separates from God is sin. Romans 3.23 Three, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. So guess what? I'm a sinner. That's the first thing you have to acknowledge. I'm a sinner. But then didn't stop there, though. What happened, verse 3? He, how that Christ died for my 
sins. There's an answer to it. There's a provision made. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8, Paul says, what does Paul say? Just slipped right out of the brain. But God committed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. You see, when you were not trying to fix it, when you were in your self-righteous rebellion, self-interest, doing it your own way, when you're in the condition of rebellion, the condition of helplessness and hopeless, what did he do? He died for you. He didn't die for you when you were on the top of your game. By the way, you've never been on the top of your game. Sorry. He never. He loved us, and he died for us when we were in rebellion. He loved us. And again, if you want to see God's love, we have great push on God's love and move and God's love. You just go look at Calvary. That's where you look. All you have to do is come and look at the cross, that objective reality where he came into humanity, into human flesh, and was born, died, and he died for my sins. He died for my sin and sins, if you need it to say that way. But then verse 4 says what? This is what gets crazy. He was buried. Now, what do you do to dead people? You bury them. Usually, okay. Do you know what being buried, and he was buried. That indicates that, number one, he was really dead. Not at this crazy idea of swooning. You know what that is, don't you? The swoon doctrine. He's hanging on the Calvary. He passes out. They come over and do their stuff, the Roman soldiers do. He stayed passed out. You know, that means they pierced his side. That means he felt that if he just passed out. But he stayed passed out until they lay him in the tomb, and when he hits that cold air of the tomb, he revived. And then he snuck out before they rolled the stone in the way. No, he what? He died, and he was buried. So the first thing there about being buried is that he really died. The, the guys come to get his body, take him down off the tree, off the cross. Peter says it's too fast, or not Peter, Pilate says it's too soon for him to be dead. He goes, well, he's dead. How do I know? This, he went and got the centurion. The centurion came over and produced the Roman death certificate, the official governmental certificate, and said he's dead. And they're like, wow, wow, okay, he's dead. The second thing that the burial represents and pictures is that when they came and took him out of the way, took him off the cross and buried him, that is a picture of the very fact that Jesus Christ took our sins away. Put them out of sight. Psalm says he put them behind him. Let it go. He took away our sins by the sacrifice of himself. And he was buried. But then it doesn't stop. There's a fourth issue. And that was he was raised. The issue of 
resurrection. And if you think about it, come over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 and verse 25. Romans 4 verse 25. Who was delivered for our offenses. What was he? We're sinners. There's our offenses. He died for them. He was buried. Then he was raised and was raised again for our justification. Do you know what stamps? Have you ever paid something off and you get the paid in full bill back? No? You should try that sometime. It's pretty cool. Okay. All right. In time? Okay. And you get that thing back and it says paid in full. The resurrection says paid in full. Paid. Done. Paid. His death put away your sins so completely and totally. And the resurrection is the receipt of it all being paid in full. If he hadn't paid for it all, then you know what? Death would have held him. But death didn't hold him. Up from the grave he arose. Third day, he's done. Here's forgiveness. And there's life. He died for my sins. Totally forgive him. Completely. And then in his death, what did he give me? His life. He gave his life for your life so that he can then give you his life to go live out through your life and in your life. Paid in full. You're in Romans 4. If you look back up at verse 5, the great requirement but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. The great requirement is no requirement. It's just believe. Now we're back over here, aren't we? I hear it. I believe it. I'm sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now I've got the Spirit of God in me. Now when I come over here and I begin to think about God's Word and how to study it and how to look into it, I have the teacher on board. He's there. He's mine. By the way, that word sealed in Scripture, it indicates identity, ownership, security, about 15 other things too. You belong to Him. He's got you. You have the real teacher of the Word of God now. Why? Because you believe the gospel of your salvation. And once you do, God has given you His Spirit to indwell in you and to teach you. And now, in order to teach you, go, go back there to 1 Corinthians 2. Notice what the, how the Spirit is teaching because this is the second key. This is the next step. Notice the teaching here, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians and verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. How's he going to teach you? He's going to use words, words on a page, words in a book. Come over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
And that brings us to the next key. So the first key is the proper student has what? A confidence and an absolute knowledge and understanding that they have the Spirit of God, the teacher of the Word of God, indwelling in them so that then they can grasp and understand God's Word. The second key now is going to be this issue of the Scripture and understanding the Scripture and knowing that I've got the proper Scripture because that's what the Spirit is going to use to teach me. 2 Timothy 3. Verse 15, and that from a child thou, and the thou here is Timothy, hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The salvation in the context is the salvation from the apostasy that's running rampant in the church, the body of Christ. Okay? Timothy's already a saved guy here, been many years in the ministry, and he's falling. There's been a falling away. Chapter one, chapter two, they've departed. Chapter three, Paul says, Remember the scripture, Timothy. It's what's making you wise here. Verse 16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You need the Spirit of God as your resident and dwelling teacher. How does He teach you? Through the Word of God. Through the words that He wrote. So now we have to have confidence in what? The book we have is His Word. We have to have confidence that we have the book that the Holy Spirit wrote. That leads us into two major doctrines in Scripture. It's the doctrine of inspiration and the doctrine of preservation. Okay? Now, we can get into these and we'll spend three or four hours and you'll go to sleep in in about ten minutes. But just look at the issue of inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of who? Of God. Inspire. Inspiration. God breathed. Look look at Matthew 4. Now hold on because we're going to look at some verses. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 4. We know the verse very well. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Inspiration. Out of his mouth. There are words that the Holy Spirit is writing that's coming right directly out of the mouth of God the Father. The Lord says, The words that I speak, they are what? Spirit and they are truth. The words. You see, the words on the page, that's the issue. And the words, Holy Spirit's working through words. Now, it's very fascinating. Look, look with me at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And I just want to show you the big three here. The Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, and Paul. The big three. Because notice what the Lord says. Mark 12 and verse number 36. Mark 12, 36, 35. And Jesus answered and said, so who's speaking? Jesus Christ, earthly ministry. 
verse 36. For David himself said, by the Holy Ghost. So how did David, David spake by who? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, using holy men of God, moved as the Holy Spirit spake, 2 Peter 1.21. And what did he cause David to write? Psalms 110, verse 1. Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. But who did the Lord say that was really doing the speaking through David in Psalms 110? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God. Same guy, three different titles. Okay? You see, the Lord Jesus Christ himself authenticates that Psalms 110, verse 1 is the scriptures of who? The Holy Spirit. Well, I just don't believe that. Then you don't believe that the Lord knows what he's talking about then, because he just said it. Now, look over at Acts chapter 1. Here's Peter. I, everybody and their brother loves to follow Peter. And Peter, Peter, Peter's our man. Peter's our guy. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 16. I think I have a typo there. Verse number 16, first mistake of the morning. First Peter, or Acts 1, verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. And he quotes Psalms 41. By the way, you go to Psalms 41, and guess what you will not read? Judas. He isn't there. But he does follow, talk about all this other stuff. And Peter says, through the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter, that guess what? The Holy Ghost spoke by, Paul, by, by David when he wrote Psalms 41, and this was talking about Judas Iscariot. But who did Peter say? Peter's the big guy. First Pope, right? You remember that? Okay. Who did Peter say? Peter said, you know who wrote Psalms 41 was the Holy Spirit using the human author, David, King David, to do it. Come over to Acts 28. Here's Paul. Acts 28 and verse 25. Acts 28, 25. So you've got, when you come to the scripture, we got the spirit. How did we get the spirit? Believe in the gospel. The moment you said, I need a Savior. Here's my Savior. I trust Him. I, again, not walking an aisle, not doing the faith, heart of hearts. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And He says, okay, now let's go to work. And how I'm going to work in you is I'm going to use words on a page in a book. Acts 28, 25. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers. And he quotes Isaiah 6. Now who did Paul say that wrote Isaiah 6? He said Isaiah did it, but by who? By who was speaking? The Holy Spirit. And by the way, it's, it is 2 Peter 1, verse 21. That's the verse we're referring to. It says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost comes in. He's got words that he wants to write. Come back to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. He's got words that he wants written down. Now, if you've got to think about this, where the words sit in deity language. They've got to get into humanity language. 
So what does he do? He doesn't violate the personality of the man. He uses it. Have you ever wondered why Matthew, depicting the Lord as king, is so governmental in tone and tenor? Because Matthew was a governmental official, and he would write that way. Why is Luke so... so Luke, we're studying it on Sunday nights. Luke, he cuts in there, and he's got the human touch to it. Why? He's a doctor. What do you got? He's got that human, that bedside manner. He's got all the detail in such a manner that just goes, wow, look at that. Isaiah 30 in verse number 8. Isaiah 30 in verse 8. The Lord's been talking to Isaiah, giving him the prophecy. And he says, now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for thine, for the time to come, for how long? How long was this prophecy of Isaiah to, last, to, to be around? It's forever and ever. You know what that indicates? Not only did God speak the word, but now he's going to preserve the word. And that brings in the preservational Doctrine, the doctrine of preservation. So if you deny inspiration, you're denying a biblical doctrine. That's my point here. This isn't coming off the pages of theology. It's coming off the pages of God's own word. So then is preservation. And then the question then is, is okay, if it's going to be preserved forever and ever, then how does he do that? Well, come back to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Because the preservation issue, now you get into all the, well, the dark ages, this and that. Do you know that there are people in the dark ages that could read, write, and spell, and do science? It's, a, it's amazing that they were not ignoramuses running around in the cave. Oh, me caveman. Not at all. Some of the great pioneering scientifically was done during the so-called dark ages. You know why they're called Dark Ages? It's because Rome was gathering her power in a political, religious sense and taking over the world and was stamping out the, the knowledge of God's Word. Not knowledge of everything else, but knowledge of God's Word. That's why the, uh, Wycliffe and those guys come in translating the Word said, we want the Bible in every plowboy's hands. Why? So he can understand it. See, Deuteronomy 17. I did all that so you could find time to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17, look here, if you will, at verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me like, us all, like as all the nations that are about me. So Israel is coming into the land, and it's time for her to have a king. Okay? Now, by the way, they beg for king... They get Saul, worst king ever. The Laos made a lot of promises, typical politician. David was to be their king. If they'd have just waited, everything would have been good, etc. Now, what are they going to do when the king shows up? Well, verse 18. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne. Uh, yeah, by the way, you ought to read verse 15, 16. Verse 7, look at verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. How many wives did these guys end up having? A lot, too many. Pity a man's whose soul so tough to say one wife is not enough. 
He had a bunch of them. And that's a problem, problem area. But look at verse 18, because this is the verse we're after. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of the law in a book out of that which is before the priest of the Levites. Now think about that. What were they to do? They were to take the original, by the way, the original five, Genesis, Mal, uh, Moses sits in the Ark of the Covenant. They were to take the original out and make a copy. They were to make a copy for the king. They were to make a copy for the priest. They were to make a copy for the people and then put the original back in the, in the box. Then as more was... Uh, Joshua was written, Judges, Ruth, those books are written. They're to take that original and stick it over there with the others, but then make everybody copies. So how was the Word of God going to be preserved? Through the multiplicity of copies. So if my copy had an error in it and the room's copies were all speaking the same, you took mine and you made a fire pit out of it and you went with the group. Copies. He had people to do it, by the way. In, in Israel, it was the tribe of the, the Levites, the Levitical tribe, the priestly group. That was their job. By the way, it didn't take them. I know Time Magazine and, and 60 Minutes and all that stuff, they say it took them forever to do that. It didn't take them ever because who was working with the Word? The Holy Spirit's working on them. See, they would have never made a copyist error, which, by the way, is what they say Romans 8 is. Romans 8.1, the end of those verses, is all copy errors. No copy errors made here, folks. Why? Because the Holy Spirit moved. The holy men of God were moved as the Spirit gave them the issues. By the way, today in the age of grace, do you know whose job it is to keep the Word of God in a copy? You and I. Why? Because we know that we have the Word of God in a King James Bible for English-speaking people, and it's our job to keep it in print. It isn't the publisher's job. It's our job. You've got to think about that. Come over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. So in these keys to enjoying the Bible, the first one, being that proper student, have that, have that, know for confidence you've got the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within you. How did I get it? I get it because I trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of my Savior. And that He and He alone is how I am justified for all eternity. Not my works, but His, His activity. Not me, Him. And then that brings me then now, how does the Spirit work? His Spirit works through the Scripture. The script, the writing of the words used down, and he, they're inspired, they're God-breathed, and he's promised to preserve them. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, i got to get there. So God writes his word, preserves it. So then the question is, is okay, how then do we know that the copy I have in front of me is the real word of God? How do we have confidence that the King James Bible or any version is really what God said? By the way, you understand that from Genesis 3. What did Satan say to Eve? Yea, hath God said. Eve, is your version of what God said the real thing or not? Or is it a fake? And he faked it because he says, you will not surely die. And the word of God to Eve, Adam and Eve was what? 
you will die. See? So he corrupted it. Get you to thinking about it. Paul, 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Not as who? How many? Many. Corrupting the word of God. Going in and messing with the text. By the way, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses tells Israel, don't mess with the book. In Proverbs, don't mess with the book. And in the end of Revelation, don't mess with the book. And before you cap a, blow a stack about Revelation, I know it's talking about an epistle and everything, but it's still don't mess with the book. And then Paul says what? Don't mess with the book. See? It's critically important. Don't mess with the Scripture. So then how do I know that I have the right Bible? Well, three verses. Get Mark chapter 1. And these are verses that I've used. I, you, again, we can argue out the preservation manuscript evidence. You will be bored to tears. <laughs> okay? We can argue out the Greek and the Hebrew. You will never understand it because you don't speak it. If you don't speak Greek, I don't speak Greek, so then you're relying on me to tell you what something I don't even understand means. Did that make sense? Not at all. What do I understand? I understand English. So just look at English. Look at Mark 1. Mark 1, 1, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, and which shall prepare the way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now think about verse 2. As it is written in the what? The prophets. If your Bible says prophets, then you probably have a King James Bible and you're good to go. But if your Bible says, as it is written in Isaiah, you got a problem. Because the quote now, behold I send my messenger, is from Malachi 3 verse 1. Not Isaiah. The Isaiah quote is in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. So we have a dilemma, don't we? When God wrote his word and promised to preserve it, you'd think it would be complete and infallible. But yet I've got a version over here of it that says Isaiah, and then he quotes Malachi 3, 1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. So you know what? i got a dilemma here. Either Isaiah isn't complete, and infallible, infallible, trustworthy, okay? Because the verse is missing. Or Mark 1 is a lie. See? Prophets, your King James Bible, the proper text says prophets. And you know what that does? That protects and allows the quote out of Malachi 3 and Isaiah 4, 40 to be there. Now, you understand that by just doing what? Reading. Come over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 and verse 14. In Colossians 1 verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Your King James Bible has through his blood. The new Bibles don't. They remove the blood issue out. Well, let me ask you something. When you heard the gospel, 
What did you hear about? Him dying and shedding his blood. How are you redeemed? Through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3.25. Well, wait a minute. That verse just took the blood out. It's messing with my justification, isn't it? It's messing with my forgiveness. So which one would I rather have? I would rather have my justification. I would rather have my forgiveness. Come over to Hebrews 10. And this is the one that I usually hang my hat on quite a bit because it's kind of a scattergun verse, Hebrews chapter 10. You see, folks, if your Bible is adding and subtracting, now you're on shifting sand. Now you become the final authority. You read the footnotes and say, well, I'm going to agree with that footnote and not with that one. No, God's word, the spirit. God is not the author of confusion. It's going to be simple. It's going to be straight. It's going to be infallible, trustworthy. Hebrews 10, and we're just dumping, jumping right in, verse 7. Then I, and that's the Lord speaking, then said I, lo, I, the Lord, come, in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So what did God the Son just tell God the Father? I came to do your will. But notice where he says, it, the testimony of God concerning his Son, James, 1 John 5, is sitting over where? In the volume of a book. You and I have the book in the English language, in the King James Bible. But now you have all these other volumes out here of the book that aren't the book. Why? Because they detract from who? The Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible that takes away from, that demeans, that lessens the Lord Jesus Christ, then you do not have the Word of God, period. And you can argue with me all day long, you still don't have it. Well, but over here in the Greek, no. In the English language, that's what we speak, there it is. For us English-speaking people, the King James Bible is the Word of God. We're to have confidence and trust in it to be the very words of God. Why? Because it promotes the central figure of all that God's doing, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't take away, it promotes. It doesn't demean, it promotes, it exalts. It puts it up on lofty display, puts him up there. And if you have one that says, no, his father was Joseph, you got a problem. If you have one that says, no, his mom really wasn't a virgin, you have a problem. No, he didn't really shed his blood, you got a problem. No, he didn't really sit down at the right hand of God the Father. You got a problem. And you can just go on and on and on and on, and we're not going to do that the rest of the morning, okay? These first two key issues, the proper student and the proper scripture, are, just, are, are two fundamental issues that you've got to get nailed down. Now, next time we'll look at the proper study and the, proper, and the secret. We'll get into that. Those other two next time. But when you put all these four together, it gives us the foundation upon which the Spirit of God can take His Word and begin to illuminate our mind, our thinking, and work in us 
and bring us to some understanding about what God's doing. And then we can truly begin to enjoy the Bible and enjoy Scripture. Because what begins to happen is, is we usually don't because we get all this twisted up and we just forget these little key foundational points. Now, there's four of them. We got two done. Next week, we'll get the other two done, okay? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've given to us. As we study your word and as we look into them, that we would just rejoice in them and give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In your name we pray, amen. All right.